Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, hello again, my friend, and welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis, your humble host. I talk movies and television from my closet on the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio, every month on this humble little show. And in just a little bit, we'll be hearing again from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, the music man here on the Stream Police. He talks about everything streaming out there in the world of music. So again, we'll be hearing from him in just a little bit. I know last month's episode, if that was your first time joining us, you may be expecting us to kind of chat together every time uh, we we do a show, but this is not that kind of show. We don't sit here and have a, a, a dialogue where we get off track for, for too long. We only do that every now and again because I know that, that episode was three hours long, even though we had the same amount of material in it that we typically have in like an hour and a half episode. But that's just what happens when Andy and I are talking together instead of separately. Uh, it's just a lot harder to stay on topic. So um, appreciate you listening in and, and sticking it out through that epic uh, three-hour adventure that we had in last month's episode. We thought we'd do something kind of uh, fun and special for you guys. It was fun and special for us, too, because we hadn't talked in a while, like really talked, talked like that um, in in a while. So it was it was great, I think, for everybody. As always, you can check me out on YouTube if this show's not enough for you. If it's not enough, Clint, for you, you can reach me there at Overdue Review, where I am just completely neglecting my channel. I... I hate to say it. You can also find me on Instagram where I'm a little bit more active at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. You'll see what movies I'm watching as uh, I usually put them in my story right then. Uh, and Andy is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak. Last name is S-E-D-L-A-K. Back in the old days, I'd light a stogie up here at this portion of the show as we were getting underway. I sit in my closet. I like to smoke a cigar, but I haven't been doing that for the past year since this pandemic has been raging on and we're having no signs that it's looking like it's going to be over Uh, out of solidarity with the folks who literally can't breathe or lost their ability to do anything um, because of this never ending nightmare that we all find ourselves in and um, hopefully we'll have vaccines coming our way. Uh, maybe you've already gotten yours if you're in the healthcare community or something like that, but, uh, I, yours truly, I have not yet, even though I I'm living with a, uh, I've got a, um, a legitimate disability as a type one diabetic, but I still haven't been able to get one 
either. So if you're waiting around out there and, and wondering where it is, you are not alone, my friend. We're all kind of waiting for that. But until then, we can at least talk about movies and TV and stay put in our houses for another couple months. What's what's more at this point after we've already been doing this for about a year, it seems like. So let's get things started as we usually do by dipping into the greatest television show theme song of all time this week. It's our 60th entry into the canon. We've been doing this one for a while. This is um, this is our 87th episode overall. So as you can tell, we started doing the uh, greatest TV show theme song of all time a uh, little bit into the run, but 60 of them now. This is our 60th one, and this is absolutely one of the all-time greats. I've had this one on my short list since I first put together the first list uh, the first like spreadsheet, I've got this Google sheet that I've been running for years now of the, the best TV theme songs. As I think of them, I add them to the list. And this one was in like the original crop that I put in when I first did the short list. So I've just been waiting to get around to it. So anyway, let me give you, let me introduce it for you. So when HBO Max launched last year and was like packed with all of this Great content from the DC Universe and mediocre content from the DC Universe as well, let's be honest. That was because of it being owned by Warner Brothers, which is who owns um, HBO now. And, and, and they own all the Turner networks. So if you go on HBO Max, that's why you're seeing shows like Impractical Jokers and these shows that were on TBS and TNT. Because Turner and HBO and the DC Universe, all that stuff, they're all owned by the same company at this point. Um, so it might, it's not as disparate as it all may seem to be. There was one title, though, of, among all that DC Universe content that was missing that many people were looking for and were so disappointed that it wasn't streaming. They're writing articles about it saying, where is this show? This is one of the reasons I was looking forward to HBO Max. I figured it was going to be on here if all this DC stuff was on here, but it wasn't. But now, my friend... That show has finally made its way to HBO Max, and it also happens to be our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. The show I'm talking about is none other than 1992's Batman the Animated Series. This legendary show, and I do not use that term lightly at all, widely considered one of the best shows in animation history, certainly in American animation history, and I would go that far as well. This show debuted on Fox as part of its Fox Kids block that it used to do, um, this little block of programming on Saturdays, I believe, and the show would end up running until 1995 in what was only two lengthy seasons, so it was on from 92 to 95 but it was really only two seasons, which is kind of crazy. Batman the Animated Series was the result of some of the best animators and storytellers working on Batman stories at DC Comics, getting together to produce a TV show that I think really took this character and his world in Gotham City to its best possible place. I just think this is the best way. The Batman movies are very, are very good. Some of them are very, very good. But this show, this is like as good as it can get when you're talking about adapting a comic book story, uh, a comic book world into 
a television or film medium. I think this this show is like the zenith of that, if you ask me. Each half-hour adventure was able to focus on a different villain in a way that made even the dopiest Batman villains, because let's face it, there have been some really bad ones over the years. For every Joker... You know, there are there's a bunch of them that you've never heard of that are just awful uh, because they're just so one note and stupid and just seem so ridiculous. But this show would would do an episode on them and they would it would make them seem like a big deal. It would make them seem like legitimate, scary villains until Batman inevitably locked him up and put him in Arkham. So this show was just great for that. It was it made all those characters seem worthy of a whole story because it was so fast paced and so well done. The show was truly a comic come to life every week. I absolutely adore this show, and part of the reason I do is because the theme song and the entire opening sequence itself is perfect. Look it up on YouTube if you've never seen the Batman animated series opening. Type that in, just Batman the Animated Series opening titles, and I I swear to God, if you've never watched this show, you will immediately want to sit down and watch like the entire run of the show because the opening is that good. It's it's completely original animation. It's its own sequence. It's not like best of clips spliced together from different episodes of the show. It's its own sequence that was made, and it's just really intense, really well done. A nice bit of action. It pairs with the music perfectly, and it shows off Batman being what he is, a complete badass in the night. Um, so you get kind of everything you need to know about this show from those opening 90 seconds or so, which I always talk about in this segment of the show. That is what I want in an opening. You know, just tell me exactly why I need to be watching this show and get me into its world in about a minute, minute and a half. And that's what makes a theme song so good. And that's why I choose to spend 10 minutes or so breaking them down every month on uh, the Stream Police podcast. I mean, I'm I'm doing research on these, writing these little openings and talking about them and splicing these clips up. And there's a reason I do that because I love this part of television. It's one of my favorite parts. And the Batman the Animated Series opening sequence is a prime example of why that is so great when it's done well. The song itself was written by the great Danny Elfman, of course. When you hear it, you probably think Danny Elfman right away. He composed the music for Tim Burton's blockbuster Batman adaptation in 1989, which kind of ushered in the whole wave of comic book movies that we're still writing to this day. It was such a cultural phenomenon, that movie was. And this theme expanded on his movie theme that he had done, but it became something completely original along the way that was even better, in my opinion, and it just kind of sets the tone for the show just flawlessly. Batman the Animated Series was TV animation really at its very best, and you know it's good because it scared the hell out of my two-year-old son. I My son likes Batman a lot, and so I'm like, we got to watch Batman the Animated Series because it's now on HBO Max. And I sat down with him and he watched like the first episode with me and, and was fine with it. But we got a couple episodes in and he just got terrified of 
the show. And that to me was all you need to know about why this show is great because it's not for little, little kids. I mean, a a Superman animated series, even the Spider-Man animated series, which I've watched with him and he loves, those are more for little kids, a lot brighter, a lot more colorful, way less scary. But Batman the Animated Series is a frightening show at some points, and the villains just look scary in the low lighting all the time, the little slats of light coming through the window, the classic film noir stuff that they do. It's just stuff that it just looks threatening, I think, to a little kid. So it really did kind of scare my son. So hopefully it didn't put him off Batman forever. Um, but I think in about 10 years he's going to think this show is the greatest thing ever when I reintroduce him to it. But this show is its just pure noir, and it's a masterpiece uh, of animated storytelling. The fact that it's now on HBO Max is a reason to celebrate because this show has been hard as hell to find in high definition for a long time unless you wanted to shell out a couple hundred dollars for like the whole Blu-ray box set of the entire series. And I didn't quite feel like doing that. So this is great. I mean, this is what you know, makes these streaming options so fantastic to be able to find these shows that you've been looking for for decades in the best possible picture um, with great sound and to be able to watch them on demand anytime without having to change discs and stuff. It's just, this is fantastic. So it made my month when I found out that this show was now finally streaming um, on HBO Max. Don't waste any more time if you haven't seen it. Uh, check it out as soon as you get the chance. And if you watch the first episode, I'm I'm telling you right now, you're going to want to sit through many, many more of them. Danny Elfman's 1992 theme from Batman, the animated series, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Just a phenomenal show. The show that brought us Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself as Joker in one of his most signature performance, a performance that he's still giving to this day. He's still voicing the Joker in video games. And the voice actors who did the parts in Batman the Animated Series are pretty much the ones doing the voices in video games and stuff like that to this day because they're so iconic and so tied to those characters Uh, that it's hard to imagine anyone else because this show just left such a mark on the people who love Batman and the entire generation that would grow up in the 90s loving Batman. And I think adults in the 90s who loved uh, Batman just fell in love with that show and, and became big fans of it. So it's just great to have the entire thing together on HBO Max now. So Definitely check that out. I, I keep bragging about HBO Max and talking about how I think it's worth it. It's expensive. I mean, it came out like at $17 a month right out of the box, which was way more expensive than anyone else. Uh, and I, I told you, I think it's worth it. And I still think it's worth it. I think they're just adding great movies. And with this new thing where they're doing, you know, Warner's new movies for a month, as soon as they hit theaters and then, you know, they pull them off the, off the, uh, platform, which I'll get to in a little bit when I break down Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, I just think they give you a lot for that money. So I think they are earning it. And of course, you're getting all the HBO content, which is some of the greatest TV ever. And there's there's no way you've already seen all of it uh, by this point. So I mean, I haven't even seen all of it yet. And I'm obviously obsessed with TV enough to come in here and, and sit in my closet and talk about, you know, TV shows that are streaming for you for free every single month. Uh, for years now. So I think uh, there's plenty on offer for you at HBO Max. And uh, I think you could even cancel a couple of the other ones probably 
and be and feel fine at the end of the day uh, as long as you kept up with HBO Max. Last month on the show, uh, Andy and I broke down. Uh, I told him some more lyrics, like really bad, just you know, kind of the kind of lyrics that stop you in your tracks that are just so bad. Um, I gave him a few examples of those in the show, and uh, it, that got a really good response. We had uh, some people say that they really enjoyed that segment; they were laughing a lot. I'm glad you guys liked it. He also asked me in that segment about some lyrics that I really love, and it was he kind of put me on the spot. It was one of those things that. Um, I, I mentioned Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. I mentioned Neil Young, uh, Rockin' in the Free World. Those were kind of the first songs that came to mind. But I was thinking about it a little bit more since then. And real quick, I just wanted to give you a few more of those. Andy and you, uh, my friend, uh, lyrics that I just live by and love uh, and marvel at that are the complete opposite of what we were talking about last month. So now that I've had a little bit of time to think about it. First off, let me hit you with this one from the great Steely Dan. Uh, the track is called Deacon Blues. It's probably my favorite song that they ever did. It's one of my favorite songs ever by anyone. And this is maybe my favorite title drop ever. Uh, it's just the kind of line that could have only come from Steely Dan. It's so weird. It's so wonderful. And it's so memorable all at the same time. They got a name for the All Alabama, the Crimson Tide, call me Deacon Blues. I love, love that line. That's the kind of thing that uh, I don't have any ink, but if I was going to get something, I think uh, they call Alabama, the Crimson Tide, call me Deacon Blues might be one of those that uh, would be at the top of my list if I was going to get some lyrics tattooed onto me somewhere so they could identify me. Uh, let me go to another one from the Dad Rock canon uh, by Jackson Brown. This is a song I know Andy loves a lot too, and you probably have heard it a million times. Running on Empty. It's a great song, and it's one of those kind of anthematic American rock tunes that's become a staple of like the backyard barbecue and shit like that. But this song is so cutting and brutal when it gets to the end. Like it, it totally comes out of nowhere. There's this line that Jackson Brown delivers at the end of the song that is so sad and so stark and hits me so hard. Every time I hear it, he's talking to a friend of his at the end of the song, and he makes this really just grim realization about this person's life. Look around for the friends that I used to turn to the Looking into their eyes, I see they're running too. I mean, that is so insightful and brutal and cutting, and it just comes right at the end of this really driving, you know, just pump-up classic rock song, uh, and I just love it. I think uh, it's a it's a great line, and it's the whole song to me. That That's the thing I'm waiting for is that lyric now. So I, I guarantee you now, when you hear that song, you won't be able to hear it without uh, paying attention to that lyric. It's just that good of a lyric. Brutal. Let me go to something a little bit more uh, recent now. And my favorite lyricist working today is Courtney Barnett. She's an Australian uh, singer-songwriter. She's so funny in her lyrics and so down-to-earth uh, and such a great storyteller. 
And she's got this great Australian accent when she sings, so it makes it, you know, just sound signature. But her lyrics are just so uniquely her. Like, she's one of these artists that could not write songs for anyone else because it would just sound like her. Like, anyone else singing, it would sound like a phony. Like, you couldn't cover her songs. I think they're that kind of personal. Uh, But Courtney Barnett wrote a song a few years ago called Avant Gardener, which is, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's not not the greatest title of all time, but... um, I mean, it's worth a laugh, and I think it's, it fits into her. Uh, I think it fits into her style perfectly. But anyway, she writes in the song this 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 whole line. This whole song is full of gems as she's kind of talking casually about dealing with asthma and kind of how it ruins smoking weed for her. She says that she's never been good at smoking bongs because she's not good at breathing in, and that's kind of the whole thing. Uh, the, the refrain that we come back to in this song. But there's this great passage where she calls an ambulance after she has this kind of asthma attack, this really severe one. And she has a chat with the EMT outside her house as she's getting into the ambulance. And there's this mutual admiration between the two of them that I think is just cool and so insightful. And this is the lyric that I love. The paramedic thinks I'm clever because I play guitar. I think she's clever because she stops people dying. She thinks I'm clever because I play guitar. I think she's clever because she stops people dying. And that is just one of those things. These two women are looking at each other and, and just admiring the other for doing something so casually and easily that they wish they could do themselves. And yeah, I mean, it, it kind of puts the whole thing in perspective because she's like, yeah, I play guitar pretty well, but I mean, you, you just saved my life. So who's the hero here, you know? And I, I think she just does it in such a deadpan, funny way. And that's kind of her signature. So if you've never checked out any Courtney, Courtney Barnett, do yourself a favor, but that track is called Avant Gardener and uh, it's full of great lines. I just love that one. Let me go to one by Father John Misty, another one of my favorite lyricists working today. He did this track a few years ago called Pure Comedy, and I don't think anyone, so any songwriter, so many songwriters have tried to go at religion hard, and John Lennon did it really well, and some others have really done it well over the years, but I just think no one has ever torn down the whole institution of religion harder than Father John Misty did in just a few lines of this song, Pure Comedy, which is such a serious track, despite what the title is. Uh, and here's what he says about it in one passage. Oh, their religions are the best. They worship themselves, yet they're totally obsessed. With risen zombies, celestial virgins, magic tricks. These unbelievable outfits, and they get tears. When you question their sacred texts Written by a woman hating epileptics I mean, celestial virgins, magic tricks, woman hating epileptics. He was inspired when he wrote that one, but clearly he was not inspired by something otherworldly. Um, so I, I love that. And, you know, it's one of those lyrics that means a lot to me. It might, you know, offend some other people. But uh, I just think he... he really nailed it right there. And the reason why a lot of people, present company included, have such problems with that entire institution. So that's one of my favorite uh, passages as well. Pure Comedy by Father John Misty. Finally, I'm going to hit you with one from the great Neil Young, uh, one of my idols. I already told you uh, last month when I was talking about this, I I mentioned Rockin' in the Free World uh, as one of those songs that's just full of great lyrics. But 
my my favorite song probably that Neil Young has ever written from a lyrical standpoint is this track he did called Days That Used To Be. And the whole song is fantastic. I love it. It's one of those you turn up all the way every time it comes on. But this song only has three verses in it. It has no chorus, but just nails kind of the whole human condition about life slipping away from us, you know, quickly and how difficult it is to keep hold of our old selves and our old relationships with friends uh, while everything is changing in our lives. And, and here Neil is trying to connect with an old pal from his carefree kind of dirt poor days. And he asks some very poignant questions of his buddy in this section, which I really love. Talk to me. that new car you got did it get you where you wanted to go or did it just get you another hundred thousand miles away from the days that used to be that's about as good as it gets uh that's again inspired songwriting love it stuff that i would get tattooed on my body so there you go there's some picks uh from yours truly as far as some of my favorite lyrics ever done you can also pick any line in the entire song graceland by paul simon and you'll probably have a favorite lyric of mine as well. That one brings me to tears nearly every time I hear it. So there's a few more for you, Andy. I know you were asking me last month about uh, some of my favorite lyrics out there. I take a hit from and ask my papa. you have any of those i mean what if do you have like lines like standout lines passages from songs that raise your skin every time you hear them in a good way like give you goosebumps um and you just there's that one part of a song that you have to listen for and that you sing along with every time because it means so much to you uh you i, I think andy would love to hear from you on that you can hit him at sedlak journal at gmail.com s-e-d-l-a-k journal at gmail.com We'll be throwing it to him in just a second. But first, I want to talk about a TV show that I finally um, got into that came out a couple years ago, won a a shit ton of awards. uh, And for very good reason, I finally sat down with it. And that was Chernobyl, uh, which HBO aired a few years ago and is now streaming in its entirety on HBO Max. This was a miniseries about the 1986 nuclear meltdown that happened in Soviet Ukraine. Uh, and it's, I mean, a, Chernobyl, everyone hears that name, the name of that town and knows, or really it was the name of the, the nuclear power plant and knows what it's referring to. Everyone has these images of nuclear meltdowns and the fear of nuclear power and, and stuff like that. But this show gets so deep into it. I, I only kind of knew in passing what Chernobyl, what happened at Chernobyl. And kind of, I didn't know anything about what led to it. I didn't know anything about the technical aspects of it. But this show is exhaustive in getting into what led to this nuclear meltdown that could have been so much worse, could have made the entire nation of Ukraine unlivable for millions of years if brave 
you know, people in Soviet Russia hadn't been able to to come forward and and use their knowledge to um, you know for good and given their lives essentially to uh, clean up this mess that had been made because of carelessness and because of pride, which is really at the end of the day why it happened, as far as this sh- in this show anyway. Um, and it's you're just aghast when you're watching this show at how bad it was, but how bad it really could have been because this could have been like. This could have been the kind of thing that um, changed human history on a massive scale. And really, I think it ended up being a very small uh, impact compared to what it could have been, even though the impact was still huge. And I mean, there are still cities in this area that you can't live in and will not be able to live in for millions of years. So like hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, it's crazy. So uh this show is just monumental. I, I was impressed top to bottom with the production of it, even though it looks so gray and muddy. It's got that whole thing going on where it just looks, you know, ugly, but it's supposed to. Um, and it's, you know, that's kind of almost hackneyed at this point when you're doing a show set in Soviet Russia is to make it colorless. And that becomes a, you know, a metaphor for the entire society. And that's a little, that's a little hackneyed, but I think in this case it works because most of the show, the show opens on the night of the meltdown on the night of the explosion. And we go from there kind of piecing it together. And then we, we finally do go back in time a little bit to see really what led to that as we get toward the end of the series. Um, but the first episode, it just, it, it, it just kind of starts there. It starts with the explosion at the plant and goes from there. And we see a lot of fallout, uh, and a lot of lives being lost and a lot of great intelligence being wasted. And, um, you know, a lot of, people that are having to be very brave when they shouldn't be in fear of their lives for telling the truth, but that's exactly what's happening. So, but I think that this kind of muddy color scheme works in this show because of how, uh, we're talking about an area that is literally poisonous to even stand in and breathe the air. So it's, I mean, you, you are killing yourself just by visiting this area where these people are trying to do the cleanup effort. Um, and it was so fitting with what we're going through now with the pandemic and just seeing the way that people are trying to protect themselves in these small ways uh, against something that's so toxic. Um, it was just uh, in- incredible and so sad. Th- this show is so grim. Let me just tell you that. If you're thinking about watching Chernobyl, I was, I joke around. I was joking around with Beth when I was watching it. I told her it was the feel-good show of the decade because I don't know if there's a show that I can think of that is this grim from start to finish. Like there's not because you even you think about like shows that are about you know, kind of just their dark shows. And you think about like Oz and you think about the Sopranos and you think about Breaking Bad even. And and it just shows that are just grim. Like they're just about bad people kind of start to finish. But those shows are funny. Like the Sopranos is one of the funniest written shows ever. There's so many great lines of dialogue. The ones that I remember that I always think of are the really funny ones. And Tony Soprano is a funny, witty guy. Um, for as much as he wanted to appear stupid sometimes. And, uh, you know, Breaking Bad was so, like, comically over-the-top ridiculous sometimes that you had to laugh, and some of the characters, like Saul Goodman, were just so laughable and cartoonish that it it, it did bring some levity to the whole thing, and, and Oz as well. I mean, there's some there's funny people in 
Oswald State Penitentiary, uh, it, going along with all the really bad things that are happening behind the scenes at that prison and just how depressing it all is. There's some funny stuff, but Chernobyl is not funny and not light. It is so serious. And I, th- I don't think that's a bad thing because I think this subject matter deserved it. We didn't need to see like the human funny side of things. And, 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 you know, we needed a stark picture to kind of understand what led to this and the kind of society that could ha- have something like this happen. And I think it's almost a cautionary tale as well. But I, being honest with you, I think the first couple episodes of Chernobyl, while this is a drama, felt like horror, like really well done horror. Like it was scary and and the explosion happens and we're, we see some things that are just downright gruesome and, and frightening and the camera's taking us deeper into the bowels of this, you know, destroyed power plant. And we don't know what we're going to see because you can't even imagine it. I mean, I don't know anything about nuclear power, but this show does explain the science of it to you. Um, in some really clever ways. And I I think I came out of it actually knowing a little bit about nuclear power and how it works and how it can be a really good and safe thing if it's done properly, uh, but also how dangerous it can be. uh, If the basic, you know, if you're trying to save money and cut costs, this is not the kind of power that you want to use. But I definitely understood it a little bit more, but I think this show just, was scary at first because it it was, it was like this happened and how much worse this could have been. It was frightening to watch and it was frightening to think about this happening on this planet and the the shit we have put this planet through is incredible. Um, I mean, we really should be embarrassed and, and Chernobyl is right at the top of the list. So there's still a lot of things to, to call from this. I think, uh, in today's society, uh, I wanted to mention the, the cast of the show. It's pretty much made up of British character actors. Like the whole production is British and the actors are almost all British. And the, the lead actors are Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, Emily Watson. They do like the three main parts of the show. Jared Harris is tremendous. They, they all were, all three of them were really, um, they were great. It was perfect casting, but Jared Harris kind of carried the whole show uh, in a nice, like, kind of star-making turn for him because he's he's usually just one of those guys. Like when he was in Mad Men and when he was in the uh, the Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr. He's kind of you know a supporting character, but he's always one that's very interesting to you, and you you kind of can't take your eyes off of him, and you feel like he just brings a lot to the table. Uh, and in Lincoln, he was great in that too. Uh, but here he's like the main guy. So it was kind of refreshing. It's always cool to see a character actor get a, a big lead role like this. And I think this was it for Jared Harris. Uh, Barry Kehogan is in it as well. A young actor that I really like a lot. He's in it for a couple scenes and does tremendous work. But one thing that was talked about a lot with Chernobyl when it came out is the fact that even though this is set in the Soviet Union, the whole production uses actors using British accents speaking English. So no one is speaking Russian in this show, even though that's what they, sh- they should be speaking. Like they're all talking to each other. I mean, they're in Russia. No one's going to be speaking English, certainly not with British accents to each other. But instead of doing the subtitle route, going for extreme realism in that, they decided to just use British actors, English accents, uh, speaking English, and that that's the way they went. And I actually was fine with it. Usually I am kind of a stickler. I, I'm 
it takes me out of a movie when all of a sudden, you know, like we're in, we're doing a spy thriller or something and we go to the bad guys and they're in Russia or they're in, you know, North Korea or something and they're all speaking English to each other. I mean, just that really takes me out of the movie. It's like, what is going on? And they're like using American accents, speaking to each other. But in this in this show, it worked because I think it was a choice you could tell right from the start that they made. They were just like, look, we're going to do this. The audience for this show is an English speaking audience. And we've got a British crew, we've got British writers, we've got a British cast. We're going to just use their strengths. We're not going to have everyone trying to do Russian accents that they may or may not be good at and ultimately distract and have everyone reading subtitles when we don't have to do it that way. The the actors in this are so skilled, and it, making them all speak English puts them all on an even foot, so even footing. So I think that was a smart move. So you've got all these character veterans and there's no one getting distracted. Like, you're not getting distracted by watching stars. You know, there's not some big star who's leading the whole thing who walks into the scene and you're thinking, oh my God, I can't believe that, that he or she is in this. So you've got all these great character actors who are able to get lost in the part and nobody feels like the odd man out because they don't have a great Russian accent. You know, I mean, and that's what happens. And, and when you've got a movie like, you remember the movie Valkyrie that came out with Tom Cruise, where he played the Nazi who tried to kill uh, Hitler. It was based on a true story. It was a pretty intense movie, really. It was uh, one that I enjoyed. I, I saw it in theaters and uh, it kind of went under the radar a little bit. But people thought it was weird because Cruise like doesn't even attempt to use a German accent. He just like sounds like Tom Cruise. He just sounds the same as he did in Risky Business. Um, and he's playing this Nazi. Uh, in Germany, who's this German guy, like not an American guy. And yet he sounds just completely American. He just sounds like Tom Cruise. And people thought that was so weird in that movie. And they, they kind of thought it was like an indictment against him as an actor. But I think in this case, it's not weird at all because it, it everyone was doing it. Everyone was speaking with their English accent, speaking English. And um, no one is trying to do Russian. So it doesn't get you know, you don't get lost in that at all. So I, I was applauding the filmmakers for doing that. So I really, I was impressed with Chernobyl from start to finish. I, f I finished the whole thing in like uh, four days, I think. Um, I can't remember how many episodes there are now. Six, I want to say, five or six. It was, it's a short miniseries. It's not a long one at all. Um, and they they jump time a lot. And it's, so a lot happens in the course of these episodes and you follow a lot of different people um, while focusing really on these three main characters who are kind of the bravest people in the Soviet Union, really, in this situation. And uh, But you, you get to know a lot of different people and see how this affected their lives as well. And there's some really heartbreaking stuff here uh, and not a lot to feel good about, honestly. I mean, there's just from the opening scene, you know, this is going to be that kind of show where you're just going to feel like shit the whole way through. But you kind of need it like we deserve it. So uh, I, I applaud HBO for making this show because this is not on paper sound like the kind of thing that is going to get you a bunch of viewers. It's not the kind of thing that's going to go viral. Like people aren't going to be tweeting about watching Chernobyl. Um it's just one of those kind of important shows and it did win a ton of Emmys, like I said, and tons of acclaim for HBO like they need anymore. But 
this was one of those shows that, you know, could have been done like by PBS or something. But I think the fact that HBO does it is great because it ends up being more visceral. It ends up being more mature as far as it's uh, the, the graphic content that they're able to show that they would not have been able to show on like a PBS. And it ends up just being film quality, really. It feels big budget the whole way through. So I was enthralled. I was impressed. I really enjoyed watching Chernobyl as much as I could because this is not an enjoyable show, but it's really good drama, really good stuff. And you might even learn some things from it. So uh, as far as historical drama goes, this is about as good as it gets. So check it out. Chernobyl now streaming on HBO Max. The tanks are sealed shut by a sluice gate and the gate can only be opened manually from within the duct system itself. So we need to find three plant workers who know the facility well enough to enter the basement here, find their way through all these ductways, get to the sluice gate valve here and give us the access we need to pump out the tanks. Of course, we will need your permission. My permission for what? Uh, the water in these ducts. The level of radioactive contamination. They'll likely be dead in a week. We're asking for your permission to kill three men. The feel-good show of the decade. Let me tell you, my friend, Chernobyl on HBO. All right, with that cheery thought, let me pass things over to Andy, and he's going to be talking about a cheery subject of his own. How about Phil Spector? What does that do for you? How's that grab you? Oh, man, lots to unpack with that guy. I'm telling you, if you've seen the media coverage of his death and you've kind of read the criticisms of it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So let's see what Andy has to say about crazy old Phil Spector. Take it away, my friend. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, hi there. It's great to be with you. It is a new day in America. Joe Biden 
President of the United States. In another January, on New Year's Day in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. When he put pen to paper, the president said, and I quote, if my name ever goes down into history, it'll be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. My whole soul is in it. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. Aside from Joe, you know, I thought Lady Gaga, J-Lo, uh, Garth Brooks, everyone did great at the inauguration. I thought Bruce's performance at the Lincoln Memorial was powerful. The new radicals got back together to play You Get What You Give. Cool stuff. The winds of change, my friends, are in motion. We hope, we hope, hope, hope that progress comes smoothly and efficiently. As smooth as Garth singing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then he hugged everybody, like like everybody. It, it was great. It, it was just great. Um, but over here, over here, I am still your same old pal. My name is Andy Sedlak, and I oversee music content here. At the Stream Police Podcast, I've been uh, holed up in my house in uh, lovely Euclid, Ohio, on the shores of the Great Lake Erie, and I've been listening to lots and lots of stuff. I had planned to tell you about that stuff today, but predictably, there was breaking news, and it's the kind of news that simply must be acknowledged. Grammy Award-winning music producer Phil Spector died Sunday. Spector shot to fame when he was just a teenager. And at 21 years old, he became the youngest person to ever own a U.S. record label company. Phil Spector has died at 81 years old. He was Mark Ronson before Mark Ronson. He was Rick Rubin before Rick Rubin. He was Pharrell before Pharrell. The single greatest producer in the history of music. And I mean that, like the LeBron James of producing, the Tom Brady of producing, the Abe Lincoln of producing. And yet, and yet his death got very little attention. Granted, we were dealing with uh, an insurrection at the Capitol building, a historic second impeachment of a U.S. president, and a truly historic global pandemic. There's only so much bandwidth out there. But there's another reason that when the greatest producer of all time died, no one cared. It's because there is zero sympathy for him. Zero. After decades of revolutionizing pop music, Spectre was convicted of murdering an actress and spent his remaining years in prison. While Spectre's ideas reshape pop music and the recording industry at large, his legacy as a visionary artist would be overshadowed decades later. In 2003, he was convicted of murdering an actress named Lana Clarkson. 
She made a couple appearances in movies like uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Scarface. But Clarkson spent most of her career acting in B-movies with titles like uh, Barbarian Queen. (laughs) And uh, let me see, I got another one here. Amazon Women on the Moon. Of course, there was also uh, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2. Look, nothing you've ever heard of. Spectre and Clarkson met for the first time the night of her death. They were at a House of Blues club. They went back to Spectre's mansion, and he shot her. He tried to say it was suicide. In fact, here is Phil Spector, in his own words, refuting the allegation. This is, this is strange audio. This is very weird, to say the least. I'm Phil Spector, and I've been accused of the most heinous crime that one can be accused of, and I'm here to dispel some of the most incredible rumors that have come out about me and the act that took place in my home, which is a castle. You, 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 uh, you can indict, the district attorney can indict a ham sandwich, only there's more meat in a ham sandwich. Bill Spector could never have done this. He could never stand up and shoot a girl in the mouth with a gun. Where's my history of this? How come for the last 40 years you've never heard stories about me pointing gun in women's mouths, blowing their heads open, and, and shooting women? And said, how come only after this Lana Clarkston incident did all this stuff come out? I've been functioning fine as a human being. The police decided not to enter the house as human beings and to protect and serve, but rather as animals. Uh, drunken animals, if you will, because I don't know that they were not drunk. The only women who have come forth that have said anything that had to testify under oath were the ones of the grand jury, and they lie. I can prove they lied by simply asking them to take a polygraph test. And one of the saddest parts of this was that no one seemed surprised. People who had worked with him weren't shocked at all. He had a history with guns. Darlene Love sang on many of Spectre's greatest productions. But Love says over time, his behavior changed and she ended their working relationship. The power and the business have overtaken him. You know, and I refused to go into the studio with him at times because they told me he had a gun and I wasn't going where no crazy person had a gun. He threatened people a lot. There are multiple accounts of him firing guns at the ceiling in the recording studio. So the guy was a mess. And yet his work holds such a special place in so many hearts, mine included. You know, I I got some tough medical news a few years ago. And afterwards, I put on a George Harrison record that Phil Spector produced. It was was just a comfort. And that's just one example of how when you put something into the world, it can find a place in people's lives. And that part, that part of the equation is beautiful. There's no other word for it. It's beautiful. And the songs that Spector was associated with definitely found a place in people's lives. 
he did You've Lost That Loving Feeling, which is the song that received the most airplay in the 20th century. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it. But baby, baby, I love it. Okay, now let's hear it. Here's your chance. Let's go. You lost that love feeling. Oh, that love feeling. You lost that love feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa. He produced uh, this song from the Beatles. Uh, somewhat uh, infamously. The long and winding road that leads to your door will never disappear. I've seen that road before. He did Darlene Loves, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, my vote for the best Christmas song of all time. He actually did a whole Christmas album with groups that he produced, and and it's wonderful, routinely ranked as one of the best and most popular Christmas albums ever released. No doubt you've heard the songs, you've probably heard them recently. We all have. And how many times have you heard this? Phil Spector brought it to fruition. We'll make them turn their head every place we go. So won't you please be my, be my, be my little baby. Be my one and only. Say you'll be my darling. Be my, be my baby now. Look. He produced My Sweet Lord from George Harrison, Unchained Melody from the Righteous Brothers, uh, Da Do Ron Ron, the song, uh, River Deep, Mountain High by Tina Turner. He, He did a bunch of songs with John Lennon, including this one. Imagine all the people sharing. He also did Instant Karma, my favorite John Lennon song. Uh, he did Lennon's Power to the People. And later in his career, he worked with the, with the Ramones and did this. Well, I don't care about history. 
songs produced by Phil Spector. And this isn't a producer who just twists knobs and adjusts levels and makes sure that everybody stays on schedule. Spectre was an artist in his own right. So when other artists elected to work with him, it meant that they wanted to incorporate his art into theirs. Oh yeah, he also uh, he also did this song by the Crystals. All of this, all of this, and yet his story ends in a murder conviction. A murder conviction. How the hell did Phil Spector go from, from you know, music, immortality, to convicted murderer? How does that happen? Well, you have to go back, like way back. And when you do, you'll find a complicated story. First of all, there is speculation that his parents were first cousins. His grandfathers both had the same last name, Spectre. Government documents show that when they came through Ellis Island in 1913, they came over at the same time, like, like the same day. Their naturalization papers were witnessed by the same person. So you can start there. That his parents maybe were first cousins. Spectre's father killed himself when Phil Spectre was only 10 years old. The epitaph on his father's tombstone reads, To know him was to love him. Nine years later, when Spectre had his own group, they released a single called To Know Him Is To Love Him. So his career actually uh, started kind of on a morbid note. Amazingly, the song actually spent three weeks at number one. It was sung by Carol Connors, and uh, Spectre was kind of the leader of their group called the Teddy Bears. The Teddy Bears broke up, but he uh, started working behind the scenes and kind of found a niche doing that. He played guitar on songs by the Drifters. He produced the original version of Twist and Shout, and, and he wrote Benny King's Spanish Harlem. By 1962, he was off and running after producing a song called He's a Rebel. The song is credited to a group called The Crystals, but is actually sung 
by Darlene Love and the Blossoms. They did not receive credit until many years later, which had to be infuriating after the song went to number one. I'm sure you've noticed a consistency in these songs. Sonically, there's a style. It has been dubbed the Wall of Sound. What is the Wall of Sound? Well, it's orchestral, and and really it's a two-part process. The first is during the actual like recording, okay? Spectre recorded a lot of instruments at once for his songs. As producer, this was his job. He usually used a group called the Wrecking Crew, but he also brought in things like strings and, and brass instruments and woodwinds, things like a harpsichord or bells or tambourines, and that's on top of five or six guitars, a couple stand-up basses, drums. You pile all that stuff up, and you can't really tell what's what, who's playing, where the sound is coming from. It, it all just coalesces together as like a solid structure, like a wall. That's especially true once you add a little echo or reverb on it. The second part of the wall of sound is actually experienced by the listener. Now, these songs were all recorded in mono, not stereo. I don't want to lose you here. We're getting into the weeds a little bit. They were recorded in mono, not stereo. What do I mean by that? You know how like when you have your AirPods in and you hear like a drum in your left ear and then a guitar lick in your right ear? That, that is stereo channeling. Spectre hated that. He wanted everything hitting you at the same time like a wall. Here is a gentleman named uh, Larry Levine explaining the wall of sound. And, and he worked with Spectre kind of... In his heyday. The fact that the room was filled with musicians bounced, everything bounced off of, and we we got all of this meshing going on. And then you added the chambers to it, and so you got this sound that all became this wall. It was a, a room saturation. We had it all melded together in the room. And of course, there was one other ingredient to help make it the wall of sound. A minor ingredient, but still meaningful. And that's Phil Spector. <laughs> we would almost never roll tape for, oh, under three hours into the session. All of that time would be spent with the musicians playing and Phil listening. And uh, one of the theories that I've evolved is that the reason he did it so long was that he wanted that, the musicians to be tired so that they lost their individualism. And now what they played could be blended into this sound. And here is Spectre himself explaining why artists like John Lennon appreciated the wall of sound technique and, and mono for that matter. Mono is recording it with the echo, with everything, and everything I did with John and George and Ringo and everyone was mono. That's the way the boys wanted it. That's the way they envisioned it. That's so that they could go into the studio, record, come back into the booth and hear it exactly as if it were on the radio. Spectre married one of his clients. Ronnie Bennett was the lead singer of the Ronettes, who Spectre produced a ton of hits for. Baby, I Love You, Be My Baby. Uh, those were two of the biggest. The marriage wasn't the happiest thing in the world. Here is Ronnie Spectre shedding a little light on Phil Spectre's character 
and talking about her marriage to Phil Spector. Tell me about the marriage, if you don't mind me asking. Oh, uh, the, the, the marriage was fine at the beginning. Mm. You know, and we were yeah. in New York and making records, and then we yeah. got married in 68, and I lived in a 23-room mansion, mm. and I couldn't get out of it. That, that was bad. I, Why couldn't you get out? Well, the doors were locked from the inside. And if I wanted to go out, I'd have to ask him, you know, can I go outside? Mm. Then I'd have to ask a security guard, and they would ask Phil, and Phil would say, what do you want to go out for? I said, well, um, ice cream, uh, bananas, uh, you know, I'd make up things to get out, and he'd have them bring it in. So it was a happy marriage, but uh, then eventually things didn't work out. It was a happy marriage for about a year. Yeah. Till I realized I was in a maximum security locker. Yeah. How did you escape? Actually, yeah. yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I did. I actually escaped with my mother. I didn't have on any shoes, and she said, can the girl have some sunshine? She never gets out. And Phil looked down at my feet and he saw that I didn't have any shoes on. And he said, fine. And that's how I never went back. She developed a drinking problem and said that the highlight of her week was when she got to leave the house to attend AA meetings. This is interesting. In 1969, Phil Spector surprised Ronnie Spector with adopted twins for Christmas. And she wrote in her memoir that after she filed for divorce, that Phil Spector had hired a hitman to kill her. The divorce was finalized, nevertheless, in 1974. Ronnie remarried in 1982, and that marriage stands to this day. Phil Spector's career began to taper off after his work with the Beatles. And after the group broke up, John Lennon and George Harrison uh, got together, hired him to touch up the Let It Be album, which, which they, had, they had abandoned, they had let it go. The song, uh, The Long and Winding Road, went to number one, which really pissed off Paul McCartney because that was his song, and he wasn't involved in any of the changes. Spectre went on to produce work for both Lennon and Harrison, as I mentioned. You may remember seeing footage of Phil Spectre in court with this massive, obnoxious, and obviously fake wig. He had, like, a bunch of a bunch of wigs, huge afros and stuff. Uh, this goes back to 1974, when he was in a car crash, thrown through the windshield. He needed 300 stitches on his face and another 400 to the back of his head. After that, he started wearing those wigs. One of the last commercial successes came with the Ramones at the end of the 1970s. Still, the two sides didn't exactly hit it off. Here are the Ramones speaking about. Phil Spector. He wasn't um, the most friendly guy I've ever met. He tried to be friends, but then he would had a guns on him, and he may, wouldn't let me out of his house for a couple days. And you know, he wouldn't let. And then if he said, if you want to play his pinball machine, he'd let you play it for a minute, and then he'd say, okay, everybody to another room. And I never met anyone like him, and I hope I, you know. Now he's just too difficult to work with, and it's too costly and time-consuming. The Ramones are one of many groups who accuse Spectre of pulling a gun on them during the session. I mean, the guy is a legend, and we uh, thought it would be a very good idea to work with a legend. Plus, we didn't really know how difficult it is to work with the guy before we, we stepped into it. We found out. I think this will shed some light on, on Phil Spector's producing style. Listen to the beginning of the Ramones Rock and Roll High School. Here we go.
Now listen to what the Ramones themselves say about it. The opening chord to a song of rock and roll high school, he spent 12 hours sitting there listening to that same chord over and over again. I mean, it's just not worth it. And nobody, nobody else could hear the difference. But the chord came out sounding okay, but 12 hours worth ain't really worth it, you know? You just go crazy. You, you would be as crazy as him. After that, his creative life was over. He tried to work with Celine Dion in 1996, but couldn't get along with the other producers on the session. That would have been something. His last production credit actually came with a group called Star Sailor in 2003. He did two songs on an album called Silence is Easy, including the, t- uh, the title track, which is actually quite good. Everybody says that she's looking for a shelter. And that came out the same year Lana Clarkson was murdered. Lana Clarkson was 40 years old at the time of her murder. Spectre was 64. Apparently, they met at the House of Blues in the uh, VIP area. And uh, in discussing Spectre's life, maybe I'll leave you with this. Here is sound from his last interview as a free man. It was in 2003, the same year as the murder. And he discusses what it means to be a genius. It's the step that makes you able to see above when everybody is seeing on the same level. You see it, but you don't know why you're seeing. You're not taller than everybody else, but you're seeing things above everybody else that nobody is quite seeing, but you can't explain it. But you know 50 years from now, you're going to be being asked questions about this day, and you're going to have to remember this day. And there it is. Phil Spector was 81 years old. As complicated a legacy as anyone in entertainment. All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify. All you have to do is search Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs to this playlist. And here we go. The first this time around is Ring Finger by Nine Inch Nails. Well, you've got me working so hard lately.
Hitchhiking by Bruce Springsteen. Gear in the souped up 72. Want to show you just what this thing will do. Telephone poles and trees go whizzing by. Thank you, pal, she sure can fly. Third, here's one of my, my favorite songs of all time. I'm not kidding. Top ten, maybe top five. I, I, I love this song. It means a lot to me. It's Patchwork River by Jim Lauderdale. This man's father is that man's son. Brothers and sisters, has he none? Look in the shaving glass, what's he see? Looks like mama, but he talks like me. Patchwork River, Patchwork River. Me and Joe Farmer walk down together. Tell a few jokes at our own expense. About life on the other side of the fence. How about... Uh, this one seems appropriate. How about Love on the Rooftop by uh, the former Mrs. Spector, Ronnie Spector? Finally, in honor of a new administration and hopefully a new day, and yes, this is a troll of Donald Trump, it is Hair by Lady Gaga. That's it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Stay safe. Stay smart. Stay hunkered down. Talk to you in a month. Peace.
Wow, man. I mean, legacies do not get a lot more complicated than Phil Spector. I mean, I have a feeling when when Woody Allen dies, uh, when Roman Polanski dies, these are the kind of things we're going to be juggling. But murder just takes it to, I mean, another level. And you're talking about a guy who's, you know, in jail for it. I mean, there is no ambiguity to, to have here. I mean, this is a guy that killed someone, killed her. So, like, unequivocally killed her. So there's just no room for nuance in that. So it's just, it's hard, man. It's hard to listen to his music without thinking about that. And I do. I think about it every time I hear even one of those Christmas songs and I hear any wall of sound song um, or I hear anything from, you know, the original Let It Be, I'm thinking about Phil Spector and I'm thinking about him murdering someone. So that's really not great as far as your legacy goes. But uh, um, I had a feeling Andy would hit that one hard uh, and glad that he did. So anyway, uh, once again, I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here on the show every month. Hit me at uh, Mr. Clint Davis on Twitter and on Instagram. You can email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com with your thoughts on the show. Getting back over into uh, stuff on the screen. Let me talk about uh, a movie that was streaming, that is streaming now on Disney Plus, that was supposed to be in theaters right now, and that is Pixar's latest movie, Soul. This one got a little bit of mixed ink, uh, mostly positive, but there were some kind of hot take reviews that uh, went at it and, and said that you know Disney missed the mark and that Pixar ended up you know being racist basically in a movie where they were trying to be inclusive because this was this movie has the first black main character that Pixar has ever had in one of its I mean hell Disney's only had like one movie with a black main character in the hundred years that Disney's been making movies uh, so Pixar's been around for way less way you know shorter of a period than that you know less than 30 years total and for them to, you know, now have a black main character is a big deal. Uh, and I thought that they did a nice job. I really enjoyed soul a lot. I mean, I hate for this show to just be me, um, slobbering all over everything that I watched, but I really did enjoy soul. It was one of those movies that we had to break it up over the course of two nights because, uh, we were watching it with our son and, uh, he enjoyed it as well. Um, and, he, you know, he had to go to bed in the middle of it on the first night. So, But I couldn't wait to get back to it and watch the rest of it. I mean, I'm like, was tempted to like watch it without him just because I wanted to finish it. I want to see where this movie was going. This was one of those rare movies where you have no clue where it's going really from the start. And I would recommend to you not to read too much about Soul before you sit down with it because I didn't know a lot. I knew you know, that it was about this like piano player. And that's what it is. The main character of the movie is a, is a piano player and he's a, you know, just a, a jazz obsessive and he plays jazz piano and, uh, kind of on an amateur semi pro basis, but he's a music teacher in New York city and, uh, for his day job. But really what he loves is performing. He doesn't love teaching nearly as much as he loves performing. And the, the character is played by Jamie Foxx and he's one of these main characters that isn't the most likable guy. So, I mean, I think there's some complexity there because he is someone that I think you root for because you can, you just, you want to see his dreams come true because you know it means a lot to him. But also he is kind of a dick in some places. Uh, so it was a, um, 
I think a good lead as far as, you know, a, a, a Pixar movie goes. And this movie just felt like a real return to form for me for Pixar, because when I think of the great Pixar movies and the absolute best ones to me are, uh, I mean, the, all the Toy Story movies are really good, but I think about like Wally, and I think about Coco and I think about uh, Inside Out was very good. And those are kind of the ones that I think of like them elevating the art form of animation as far as doing things that you just can't imagine anyone else doing because it's so imaginative and the amount of money they throw at these abstract concepts like Coco's kind of all about death and fa- connecting with your family, you know, and, and exploring the afterlife even and 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 soul is even more about death. Uh, as you'll get into once you once you watch the movie, they're exploring things like the soul and, um, you know, the afterlife and even the before life. You know, what happens to how are people made? Do people, you know, are they born with personalities? And if so, then where does that come from? And th- these are the kind of lofty things that they're exploring in this movie. Like Inside Out was all about the inner workings of the of your personality, of what makes you you. And this movie is kind of a spiritual successor to that. And this one was directed by Pete Doctor, who's been with the studio since the beginning and has been behind some of their best stuff. And he did Inside Out and he did Soul. So it was kind of a natural thing. Uh, it was co-directed by Doctor. So I just feel like this was really a return to Pixar doing things that are so lofty and no one else could tackle in animation and no one else would even dare to tackle in animation. And I think they nailed it. It was like... The great Pixar movies, they're constantly creating new IP. They weren't just doing sequels all the time, and they were really making you think while presenting these scenarios that were so imaginative that they could only be done with Pixar's animation style because it's just something about it that lends itself to creating these really weird worlds. And, and what they create in Soul is something that I've never seen done on screen before. Uh, when you get into the world of the soul. And I think they just did such a great job with the voice actors in that world and with, and with the kind of abstract animation style that they did with the souls and how the souls are presented. And I think they were cute and they could make good merchandising opportunities, but also they were, you know, kind of a, this is the way that I would like to think of souls looking. I mean, they were pleasant to look at and they were cuddly, but also, you know, I mean, they had, they were kind of anthropomorphic and it was easy to project onto them and feel something. So I think the art style of it was just really well done for a movie that could have gone anywhere. I mean, this was a completely kind of blank slate and that's a scary thing. I think when you're a creative person and soul was just one of those movies that you could tell how creative they were feeling when they made this movie. So I admire Disney, I admire Pixar for doing this movie because it's not just the fact that they've got a black lead, which is a big deal still in any mainstream big budget movie. Um, because there are so many people that are going to be turned off immediately by the fact that you've got a non white character leading the movie. I mean, that's the sad fact about movies is that movies that have non white leads are generally broken into some kind of subgenre. Like if you've got a, a Latino lead in a movie, it's typically called like a Latino movie. And if you've got a black lead, that oh, that's a black movie. That's black cinema. It's not cinema. It's black cinema. And whereas movies with white lead characters are just called cinema. They're not called white cinema. It's not just movies made for white people. But that's how it is, and it's fucked up. So Soul is a movie that could have been put into some category of, well, it's, it's, it's for black people. It's a black movie. Uh, it's not for me. But this is a movie that's for everyone, and... It, 
explore some really lofty topics, and they could have easily done it with a white lead, but they did it with a black lead, and they did it with Jamie Foxx doing the voice, and he was a great choice because um, I think he just gave this character everything he needed. But this is a, this was a, a, an interesting role for Jamie Foxx because he's not like a, a showy, he's not a... Um, in your, he's not singing. He's not like in your face with showing you how talented he is, which is kind of Jamie Foxx's thing a lot of times. He's always trying to work in ways that he can show you that he can sing and be really funny. But in this movie, he's he's really kind of just a straight man, um, and not the he's not the funny character of the movie. He's the straight man. The funny character of the movie is played by Tina Fey, and she plays this soul who's like this troubled soul who's been around since the beginning of time, essentially, and has just never been able to make it to the Earth because she really doesn't want to. She just doesn't care to go there. She thinks the Earth is stupid. She thinks people are stupid, and she doesn't want to get involved in that, so she kind of just stays in the soul world all the time. But he ends up you know, linking up with her and, and being her mentor, essentially, and trying to get uh, her to come to earth and embody uh, a, a person of her own. So Tina Fey's character really kind of steals a lot of scenes because she is the kind of, you know, all the great Disney movies have like that animal companion um, who kind of steal the movie. And I mean, in, in the Lion King, you've, you've got Timon and Pumbaa who come in and really do hijack the whole movie. And just, they're kind of all you, think about after you've left the film um and it goes on and on i mean in the little mermaid she had sebastian and then in like beauty and the beast there were all the different uh you know cogsworth and lumiere and uh the and mrs potts and all of them so you have all these sidekicks always it's a signature staple jiminy cricket and pinocchio of disney movies going back decades and in soul the main character is jamie fox's character but and his name's joe in the movie but the 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 character that kind of steals the scenes a lot of times ends up being soul 22 is her name, uh, played by Tina Fey. And I thought this was, uh, good work from Tina Fey who can, can be kind of grating at times. I think she's another one of those actors that whenever you're watching her, like you're always like, yeah, it's Tina Fey. Like I never feel like she's playing anyone. I just always feel like she's just her. And so I don't, feel like she's necessarily a good actor because it's just, it's just Tina Fey. Like she's just being Tina Fey. It's like Will Ferrell when he's in a movie, like he's just being Will Ferrell. He's not being anyone but himself. So that gets on my nerves a little bit, uh, at times, but in this movie, I, I did kind of forget that it was Tina Fey and I was just listening to her play a part in it. I'm sure it helped that I couldn't see her because she has that signature look that never changes in any time period or any movie that she's in. Uh, but I thought she did good work here. It was kind of odd casting because, you know, I think of Tina Fey and I think of 30 Rock and I think of all the blackface. You know, they had like two different blackface scenes on that show. And that was her show. And so it's like Tina Fey kind of likes blackface. And she's doing this movie, uh, which is kind of a, a watershed moment in animation for black representation. And so that was kind of weird for me. But I don't think that Tina Fey's a bad person, but I think she's been involved in that insular, white-led, white-dominated world of kind of sketch comedy and, uh, you know, didn't necessarily come up around a lot of black perspectives when she was coming up, I'm sure, in Second City and all that stuff. Uh, but she did a good job in the movie, looking beyond all that. I, I, I did end up liking her. Uh, in this movie. And I liked her and Jamie Foxx together a lot. I thought they did a nice job, but I really did like soul. I thought it was, I just didn't know where it was going. And I mean, that is a good thing. And it it was heartfelt and um, meaningful and it it was funny. 
it had some really good physical gag kind of stuff in it, uh, but it also had some very just nice things to say about life and slowing down and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know that it's uh, observations on life or anything we haven't seen before. It's kind of kind of well-worn territory. I think the kind of things that they're telling us to to uh, make important in our lives. But uh, I just think the the creativity that was put on display in bringing the world of the soul to life was impressive. And some of the things they did uh, to to make this funny, I think worked really well uh, as well. So it was, it worked for me. I really did like Soul. I, I enjoyed it. And I, I think the fact that this was made free on Disney Plus is the kind of thing that is making that service well worth the $7 that you're paying every month. Um, because this movie would have cost you $30 to go see in theaters. I mean, if you were going to go to Soul with just one other person, you're going to pay 30 bucks, like bare minimum. And I think the movie would have been worth the price to see in theaters for $30. I would not have felt let down if I paid that much money and went and saw this movie in theaters because it was it was really good. And a lot of work went into it. But the fact that you're getting it for $7 and you're watching it at home anytime you want to is remarkable. And it looks really good. I mean, it's like in 4K. And so, I mean, what can you really complain about? I think Disney Plus has been a great success so far because of stuff like this. So the decision to bring Soul right to Disney Plus. At first, I was worried it was going to cheapen the movie a little bit and it was going to make it feel like, you know, a kind of made for TV movie. But it didn't do that at all. I think this movie was clearly big budget, an important movie for Pixar and for Disney. And it uh, came off that way. And I think it, it's going to go down as one of their best. So the fact, though, that you can watch it for $7 with your Disney Plus subscription is great and is uh, another reason to keep that subscription around. So uh, I, I really liked it. That's my, those are my thoughts on Soul. I wonder, what did you think? Did you check it out? Uh, did you like it as much as I did, or were you a little bit colder on this movie? Uh, hit me up at theclintdavis at gmail.com. I also really liked the music. They did a very nice job. John Baptiste did the original jazz music and uh, the great duo, the prolific duo of uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did all the rest of the music in the movie. And I think the two of them, the two styles melded together really well uh, into like a very unique soundtrack that Soul had. This was a movie that was kind of all about music from day one and they did a great job. And the animation of the music playing of the performances was really good, really cool stuff. Is this heaven? <laughs> no. Is it H E double hockey sticks? Hell, 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 It's easy to get turned around. This isn't the great beyond. It's the great before. The great before? Oh, we call it the U seminar now. Rebranding. Does this mean I'm dead? Not yet. Your body's in a holding pattern. It's complicated. I'll get you back to your group. <laughs> Come on, little souls. Get on up here. Welcome to the youth seminar. All right, so I want to real quickly tell you, um, speaking of movies that were made available for free on uh, streaming platforms, even though they should have been in theaters, 
Uh, Beth and I also sat down with Wonder Woman 1984 in the last month, and I don't want to go into some big exhaustive review of it. I just kind of wanted to say that I thought it was definitely better than what I was seeing, which was people just were kind of running it down big time. I thought it was, you know, a comic book movie sequel. I mean, it, it went a different direction than the first Wonder Woman did. I definitely didn't think it was as good as the first Wonder Woman. Um, it was very long. I, there was almost too much story in it to to sustain just a movie. It felt like enough story for like a mini series, to be honest. And and the movie was almost three hours long. It was really long. Um, but man, the production values through the roof. Uh, the costuming was fantastic. The setting of the 1980s has been so done at this point. But uh, I think it. it it worked well here. I would have liked to have seen them maybe have a little bit more fun with it and maybe be a little bit more funny. Those DC Universe movies are so goddamn serious. And this one was kind of that way. It was almost like a drama at times, like a character drama. There was not very much action in it. But I enjoyed it. I mean, I, this is one of those movies that uh, I don't think I would be recommending it as full-throated if I if it were only in theaters and if I had gone to see it in theaters, I don't think I'd be sitting here saying like you got to go out, rush out and buy a ticket to watch Wonder Woman 1984. I would say wait till it's on streaming, wait till it's, you know, you can watch it at home. And so now we watched it while it was on HBO Max. So the way they're doing this with their Warner movies is they are releasing them on HBO Max the same day that they hit theaters. But they're only on HBO Max for 30 days. So you get this 30-day window to watch them. And then they go back to just being in theaters for another couple months or whatever, and then they become available on home video. So it's not clear if they're going to be right back on HBO Max as soon as they hit Blu-ray or whatever, or if we're going to have to wait a little longer. Um, but they are only available for 30 days on HBO Max before they go back to not being available. So it's almost like they're going back in the vault for a little bit to use the old Disney VHS uh, lingo for you. So Wonder Woman 1984 right now, you cannot watch on HBO Max if you're listening to this as as I'm you know putting it out. It's now only in theaters again. And from what I'm reading, it's going to be available for video on demand rental and, and buying likely in March. So it's going to be another couple months before you can watch this movie if you missed it on HBO Max. And I'm not going to recommend that you go in theaters to see it. I mean, if you were like a diehard Wonder Woman fan, you probably already watched it on HBO now. So I think you can safely wait. This is not a movie that is worth risking your life to go and see in a movie theater right now. If you have your vaccine and you want to go see it, then go for it. But if you don't, just wait because this is not it's not that good. I mean it's it was fine, but I mean it's a three hour movie where not a whole lot happens. But I think there were some interesting like I liked the two villains. I I liked seeing Kristen Wig play against type. I still think Gal Gadot has this commanding presence, this movie star presence that we just don't see that often these days. She is just someone that you cannot look away from when she's on screen. That's what makes a great movie star. And she's really good in this part. This is still like some of the best casting I've ever seen as far as putting Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Gotta go down as one of the greatest pieces of casting in movie history. Uh, and she just re remains perfect in that role. I think she does a very nice job as Diana, aka Wonder Woman. So uh, Wonder Woman 1984, it's a soft recommendation for me. It's not a go out and risk your life recommendation, but uh, 
it's likely going to be back on video on demand in March. So wait till then and check it out if you missed it. I think you'll like it. I mean, if you like the first one, you're going to like this one. There's nothing about this that like ruins the, you know, it ruins, sullies the reputation of the first one or anything like that. It's just a fine superhero sequel. This is the way they do them. I mean, typically they're not as good the second time around. And in this case, there were some moments that I liked a lot. I love seeing Chris Pine be back and seeing her, him and Gal Gadot kind of, you know, uh, being charming and being kind of sexy and fun and flirty together. That was, that was fun again. And like I said, Kristen Wiig was really good, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just your typical kind of sequel. So some things they nailed, other things they didn't, but, uh, don't risk your life to go see this movie. It's definitely not worth that. (laughs) Tell me, what do you want? I'm feeling generous. I don't want to be like anyone anymore. I want to be number one. An apex predator. Like nothing there's ever been before. I like the way you think. Now, if it was like The Godfather Part 2 or something, then, you know, maybe that's worth getting COVID and dying for him to go see that one in theaters, but not Wonder Woman 1984. All right, I'm going to tell you about the best thing I watched this month in just a second. But uh, first, I wanted to say that uh, Peacock is now out, and I have been messing around on Peacock a little bit. This is NBC's new, NBC Universal's new uh, streaming platform. And it's interesting because it's free. So there's a free tier, which not like no one else is really offering the free tier. But Peacock is doing a free tier where you can watch the stuff on there with ads. So you can watch The Office from start to finish. You can watch Parks and Recreation from start to finish with ads. You know, uh, but there's also a pay tier that's pretty cheap. I think it's like $5 a month and you still have to watch ads, but you can watch all the uh, premium stuff as well. Like they have some things that are behind a paywall that you can't watch unless you have the premium subscription. And then they have another tier that's like 10 or 11 a month that gets rid of the ads and you can watch everything on there. So I've been messing around on the app. Uh, I've been watching Saturday Night Live all the way. I'm trying to finally watch it all the way through just as a piece of history. I I don't recommend anyone do this because it's just unwieldy. Most of the shit's not funny. Most of the episodes are not very good all the way through. You're kind of better off watching those best of DVDs. Um, But I just want to do it because it's something I've never done and I'm a nerd. Uh, But... That's what I've been using Peacock for because they have every episode of SNL on there for free. So it's like, why not? I mean, they're they're in high def. Um, I'll give you a fuller report on what I think about Peacock next month. But from just my little bit of messing around with it over the last few weeks, I want to say that this does seem like an app that I think you should definitely add to your lineup on your smart TV or your Roku or your Fire TV or whatever you use, uh, go ahead and, and download Peacock if it's available to you because it's it's worth watching for free. I mean, they, they do have a good batch of content on there. The Harry Potter movies are on there as well. Um, and uh, it's it's free. I mean, what you have nothing to lose. So check it out and do some clicking around and, and see what you think. NBC Television. All right, the best thing I watched this month. Over the past month, man, on the last show, I talked about at the end of the show, I I recommended that you watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy because I said they were streaming on Hulu. So I did just that, but I went a step further. I was like, man, you know what? I've never seen the extended versions of these. I love these movies. 
I like I like the Hobbit trilogy as well. Never seen the extended versions. They had them on sale after Christmas, so I ordered the extended Blu-ray editions of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogies to add to my collection. And Beth and I watched through them over this past month, and these are these are long, man. I mean, these are like an hour extra on top of everything, and I actually like them better than the theatrical versions. But the best thing I watched this month was The Fellowship of the Ring, the extended cut. This is a, a great movie anyway. It's one of those 10 out of 10 movies for me. just nails everything. It's like the perfect adventure film. Um, but the extended version is even better. So what's not to love? If you never watched The Fellowship of the Ring, what are you doing? Why did you miss it? Why did you skip it? I mean, did you think it sounded too nerdy? Did you think it sounded too... Uh, niche or something? Because it's not. This is something you definitely need to watch. Piece of cinematic history that uh, deserves your attention. Great cast, great adventure, awesome story, uh, fantastic dialogue, very funny. Doesn't get enough credit for being funny and just absolutely gorgeous. Even with all the CG stuff, still looks good. But the scenery around New Zealand, that was a stroke of genius to pick New Zealand to be Middle Earth. Just one of the great choices in uh, casting, uh, or not casting, uh, in uh, location, you know, scouting in the history of movie making. So The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that was the best thing I watched this month. All right, let me give you some movies now streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and HBO Max. I'm going to give you something funny and something serious from each of them. So on Netflix this month, something funny for you. 1988's The Naked Gun, Leslie Nielsen, uh, O.J. Simpson before he was a murderer. Good luck watching these th- those movies without thinking of him killing people. But Leslie Nielsen's the star all the way through. And this movie is so funny still. The jokes come at you at such a rapid pace. And Nielsen is just so deadpan serious that it's, I mean, they're, they're perfect as far as comedy, you know, uh, just silly comedy movies that I can go back to time after time. The whole ending sequence at, at uh, is it Dodger Stadium or Angel Stadium? It's at the LA Angels game, yeah. That whole sequence is just a, a masterpiece of cinema. So if you've never seen The Naked Gun, check it out on Netflix now. Something serious for you on Netflix from 2011. David Fincher's um, American version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. This one uh, doesn't get as much love as Fincher's other movies, and for good reason. It's not as good as his best, but it's still it's a gorgeous movie, great looking movie. Um, Daniel Craig's really good in it. Uh, Rooney Mara's really good in it as well. I think the casting was great. I think there are some moments in this movie that are better than the um, the, the original, um, you know, the foreign language version. But I, I do think the foreign language version of the girl with the dragon tattoo is the one to watch. But this, you know, English language version, really good and just a gorgeous movie. It's a, it's a cool story. Elizabeth Salander is a, a really cool character. And um, Rooney Mara did a very nice job bringing her to life. She kind of gave her all uh, for that part. Uh, let's go to Amazon Prime Video. Something funny for you. From 2012. Again, piece of cinematic history if you never watched it. Marvel's The Avengers, the original Avengers movie. It wasn't the first of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it was the first time we saw all these characters, Thor and Iron Man and Captain America, all these characters coming together, the Hulk, and doing something on screen together. And it was it was years in the making. It was It felt like a big deal. And the movie is really good. Like, it's just a, a well-written, well-executed fun movie to watch from start to finish and there's no 
when you watch it, you understand why this became the uh, you know franchise to end all movie franchises, because this movie really was very well done from top to bottom. So the Avengers from 2012, if you for some reason never watched it, check it out. Uh, uh, give it a watch. It's on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, also on Amazon Prime Video, something serious from 1993, Tom Cruise in The Firm, Intense, directed by Sidney Pollack. Uh, this isn't my favorite Tom Cruise movie. It's not even my favorite Tom Cruise courtroom movie. That would be um, A Few Good Men. But The Firm is really good. It's not even really a courtroom movie. This is John Grisham, but... This is like, I don't think any scenes take place actually in a courtroom. This is almost like sci-fi or horror. It's almost like the Twilight Zone. It's about this young lawyer who gets um, a a job at a a really high-powered firm in Memphis and starts to realize that things behind the scenes are not quite what he thought they were going to be when he gets there. And, And it's a very just tense taught movie from start to finish expertly directed by Sidney Pollack cool movie it's it's Cruz really at his best and uh it's a thinking man's movie it's not a this isn't a dumbed down legal movie this is a this is pretty twisty turny kind of stuff here and Gene Hackman is very good in it as well so check out The Firm from 1993 on Amazon. It's actually also on Hulu if you want to see it on there. On Hulu, something funny for you from 1987, The Princess Bride, Rob Reiner's immortal comedy fantasy movie um, with just beautiful scenery, great costumes, uh, an awesome story. One of the best setups that I can remember any movie having with the grandfather reading the book to his grandson, and and that's how we get into the movie. And uh, we kind of go back to them several times. I just think kind of everything about this movie works still to this day. So many countless great lines. Wallace Shawn is flawless in it. I mean, when isn't he? but Carrie Elwes and, of course, um, uh, Robin Wright is just really good, really young in this movie. And it's, uh, it's and Andre the Giant. I mean, what's not to love about The Princess Bride? There's a reason why it's one of the all-time American comedy classics. And you can check it out now on Hulu if you, for whatever reason, missed out on it uh, for all these years. It's worth, uh, it's definitely worth your time. Uh, something serious for you on Hulu from 1997, The Great Boogie Nights, one of my absolute favorite movies uh, on my short list for the best movies ever made, directed by the uh, the master, Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is him really at his best uh, as far as doing these big Robert Altman style, huge ensemble cast movies, telling a big story in a period, uh, great costumes again here. Um, Mark Wahlberg is kind of the weak uh, you know, the weak part of the whole cast, even though he's the main character, but the rest of the supporting cast is so great that it doesn't even matter that Mark Wahlberg is just subpar in his performance as this young porn star who gets caught up in the, the world of adult cinema in the 1970s in California. It's a great movie, fantastic soundtrack, beautiful movie, so sad. Uh, and some amazing performances from Julianne Moore and from Philip Seymour Hoffman and William H. Macy. And, of course, Don Cheadle as the cowboy, the uh, um, porn star who also who just wants to be a cowboy and sell uh, car stereo speakers. It's bizarre, man. There's some really memorable characters in Boogie Nights, and uh, I love this movie dearly. It's one of those movies that really got me into movies. So from 1997, check it out. Don't waste any more time. Boogie Nights on Hulu. Finally, on HBO Max, let's go with something funny from 1984. This is Spinal Tap. 
Uh, here's another Rob Reiner movie for you. I've given you two of them. Uh, this is Spinal Tap. It's one of those movies that I rewatch every couple years. I watched it again last year, I think, and still one of the funniest movies ever. Still works. Every joke still works. Um, the the fact that it's like supposed to be a documentary works perfectly. Uh, the, the premise is fantastic, following this fictional rock band around, but it feels real and... Um, the stories that the, the things that happen to them along the way are just legendary. And, uh, you know, the, the lead performances from Christopher guest and Michael McKean and, uh, Harry Shearer are the stuff of comedy legends. So this is spinal tap. If for whatever reason you never got around to this one, check it out on HBO max. You will not be disappointed. I laugh out loud every time I watch this. It's brilliant. Uh, all the way through and something serious on HBO max got a lot of good choices this month, but I'm going to give you Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. If this one flew under your radar, this is one of those that I'll never forget seeing in theaters. And it's just a powerhouse crank up, turn up your, your surround sound all the way and get lost in this movie because it is as good as action cinema gets. The story's great. The characters are, are complex. Um, the scenery is unforgettable. It's so original. The The car action is breathtaking, um, and it's just visceral, man, like bone crunching. When the cars crash, you just feel it, uh, and the whole thing is just cool. The world it exists in feels original and, and unique, and the, the movie's it's great. It's uh, Charlize Theron, one of her best performances ever, and Tom Hardy's great as well. So Mad Max Fury Road, just Stop wasting time and watch the damn thing. You will love it. If you love action movies at all, watch Mad Max Fury Road right now because it is it is awesome. HBO Max added a ton of great movies in the last month. I had a really hard time picking a couple. But you've also you can watch Chinatown, one of my very favorites, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Mulholland Drive, The Exorcist, which I've raved about in recent episodes, Reservoir Dogs, Seven. The producers, the original producers, you got so many great movies right now on HBO Max. Again, I just love that service. I think they're giving you a lot there that is worth your money. Even though it is a little expensive, I think it's worth it, especially when you got to stay at home as much as we do now. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. It's been a blast hanging out with you once again. Uh, I am Clint Davis. You can reach out to me uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, and you can email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. Andy, by the way, is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, S-E-D-L-A-K, and you can email him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. All right, my friend, it's been a good time bumping into you once again. Let's do it again next month. We'll talk to you then. Until then, stream on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.